I think that's something that I had from Twitter is that you start things you start questioning, you know, where you used to be alone thinking that's really odd or like, why should scientists do that? This is crazy. Uh, and if you're the only one asking these questions in your lab group, you're probably going to shut up and think it's just you. And then Twitter allowed me to start meeting other people who felt the same. Hi, Hertz fans. James here with a very special message and apology. Something went really odd with the first half of the recording on this episode, uh, and as a consequence, I have had to include all the horrible things I've said in post-production. So if you're wondering why I'm occasionally quiet and then popping up to sound weirder than usual, that's why. And, you know, we didn't want to waste this because this is Amy, and Amy's awesome. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana and I am from the University of Oslo and thank you to our smart-ass and eagle-eared listener, Dennis, who pointed out the grammatical error in my usual introduction. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> I'm also here, as usual, with James Heathers, who is from <laughs> Northeastern University. And, and we are here with, um, with Amy Auburn. Um, who is our very special guest. Uh, and Amy is a college lecturer and PhD candidate at the University of Oxford, whose research examines how digital technologies affect adolescent psychological well-being and mental health. And she is also the co-founder of Reproducibility, which is an early career researcher-led journal club initiative that helps young researchers create open science groups that discuss issues and papers and ideas with improving science. Amy, thanks for joining us. Thanks. You have a long breath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, thanks keeps- very much for having me. It's it's lovely to be on. This is um this is you you've been on our list to have as potential guests for 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 quite a while, and uh, you've also come up as a, a few requests both publicly and also in DM. So we're we're very glad that um that you've uh, that you're joining us for today's episode. Well, uh, it's my pleasure. Like <laughs> I can talk about my research. Like what 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 is better. <laughs> well, um, let's just jump straight into it. And I want to ask you, Amy, um, is is Twitter melting our brains? I was prepared for this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do remember um, the one of the most uh, talked about things that uh, James's predictions early on in the episode was that Twitter is a uh, cancer of the soul, and and now he's like a like a pig in the mud. <laughs> I guess I, it's just my my answer is always it. It really depends, you know. On average, it probably won't be ruining you guys. That's a simple answer. And then in, if I overcomplicated like any scientist, it'd be like, most people will be completely fine, but there might be some people who are really positively affected and some people who are really negatively affected. And because, But on average, we find there's no effect. So we don't and, actually and w- know. And what is kind of, can you walk us through the history of this like digital technology panic? How did, how did we get to where we are right now, where you have people selling books who are telling us that, um, you know, doing TED Talks that Fortnite is killing our youth and, and doing all this kind of thing? How did we get to this point now where, where people are getting really freaked out about the amount of screen time that, um, that the kiddies and the youth are getting? Yeah, like, I, I think the first thing is that it's, it's really natural, isn't it, to that any big change in society causes waves of concern. You know, we've seen that time and time again. And 
Um, so it's really hard to know when people swap from, for example, being scared of, um, the printing press to being scared of romance <laughs> novels, to being scared of Elvis, to being scared of jazz, to being scared mm. of violent video games, to being scared of social media. Um, it's quite a fluid. At this point, I mentioned in the late 19th century, some enterprising dickhead came up with an idea called bicycle face, where women who rode them would look overexerted and generally ruined. Um, and if they rode a bicycle for too long, would end up essentially um, <laughs> essentially breaking their own face through mechanisms presumably unknown. Bicycles is a good one. Bicycles wasn't the last one. <laughs> Bicycles. <laughs> um, I think video games, we're still kind of in that one, but it's definitely taking up less airtime. Yeah, I think, I think video games has probably been kind of the the last one which i think now naturally there's fortnite but i think the the concern has definitely gone over to social media um mainly at least what i see naturally you only see a very small subset of of things at this point i wonder what's coming next and hope it's something fun <laughs> oh, we have discussions about this. Um, I think I think that it might it might an extension of social media might be augmented in virtual reality. But then I think it's also things like data being collected about your children from a very young age, smart toys, these kind of things. So it's naturally really hard to predict, and I I can't tell the future as well. But um, I think. A big thing for me is that we're always behind in this research because you're always kind of following the moral panic um, if you're in that position like I am now. Uh, and something good would be to actually try to predict what will happen next and start researching that now. <laughs> so mm. if there are any PhD students out there who need a, <laughs> need an uh, area of research, I would I would bet on augmented virtual reality and kind of data collection. I think we're not we're not doing a good job, and because naturally there's so so much space for moral entrepreneurs to just go out and talk about their ideas, and there's very little science to really then put them in their places. So I think we are behind. You know, we should have been sorting out the general social media versus well-being issue five years ago, and now gone on to really think about the minute details about it. I think it's hard because it's an area where people don't stay in their spaces. So my collaborator, Andrew Shabilsky, always says it's like toddlers playing football. You know, every they all run after the ball. And that's like the sexy research topic, even though I don't mm. like that word. Um, but if they would stay in their positions, it would all be like it would be a much better game. Um, and I think that that's what I see as well. So... Um, yeah, we don't really have a good system yet to really address these moral panics because they arise and then only once they've arisen does all the research funding and the research researchers stream into that area and then it's kind of too late. So, yeah. This is a particularly interesting point for me. I've never heard the phrase moral entrepreneurs before uh, and I immediately need to know everything about it. I don't know where I picked it up. It's probably from one of the great people that I get to work with on a weekly, day-to-day -day basis. Um, I think for me, a moral entrepreneur is somebody 
who makes a living out of these moral panics. You know, I've been on radio shows with moral entrepreneurs who I think they're doing a really good job. Like it's really, I, I try to give them a chance by just thinking about that. In the end, they're business people who are profiting off a wave of concern by parents or by society. And that's their, you know, five-year window to make the bucks and um, to have that media airtime and then to kind of do the next thing. And I do think they exist um, because they always seem to move from one thing to the other as well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I, it is a job almost. Um but yeah, and I think we're going to see that more like this year. I think there's, I've been sent so many kind of, this book is coming out soon about, you know, social media is ruining your kids, how to stop being glued to your phone. Um, and because every newspaper laps it up, every media outlet laps it up, it's a, it's a very lucrative business. I, I, w- I was going to ask, um, in, in the context of your research, can you actually walk us through what you did with your Nature Human Behavior paper? Yeah, so, like, the story is really long, how I ended up actually doing that, because, but it's based on two data sets that have been analyzed previously in research, Um, and I got sent the paper that this research was based on when it was under embargo by a journalist, and I was still kind of in the middle of my PhD then, I didn't really know what I was doing, and I tried to recreate the analyses overnight before the paper was published um, because I just felt like the conclusions weren't, I couldn't see them being backed up by the data and the data is openly available. So I'm a data parasite and I can download all the data. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I was downloading it and I just felt like I, a lot of things for me didn't make sense. Um, changing very small things in the analysis that was reported in that paper made massive differences in what was found um, in the analysis. And I blogged about it at that time on Medium, and I kind of screamed about it on Twitter to my 100 followers or something. Um, but then I was kind of at a, at a junction. So I could either write a commentary for the paper and send it to the journal and kind of fight that paper that way. And for me at that time, in the environment of my department, I don't think it would have been appreciated that a young, maybe female PhD student does that. Um, so even being very vocal on Twitter at the time, I got some comments, which made me feel like, um, I don't know, I was still working on the project. And then I came across somebody mentioned specification curve analysis to me, which seemed like the ultimate perfect solution. I could take apart a paper and I could do it in the most British way possible and not criticize the paper whatsoever. <laughs> um, uh, or not not personally criticize it in a way of kind of saying that there might be something dodgy because you never know. Um, so specification curve analysis is amazing because it allows you to run all possible analyses um, on the data. So all theoretically defensible analysis options. Um, it's kind of like mapping the garden of working paths. So as Gelman said, just analyzing your data is hugely influential to what you, in the end you actually find. You know, I think I often thought data analysis with like a microscope that I just put to my data and I can see what is there. And now I've completely changed my opinion on this. You know, it can really change what you see. Um, and so what I did in the paper is think about all the different ways that I could have analyzed 
these two data sets and then an additional data set I added from the UK. Um, and I ran all of the analyses. Well, I didn't run all of the analyses because I think it was up to a trillion that I could have done. So I only ran about, I think it was 20,000 for one, for one data set and a couple less for the other. Um, yeah, now I'm, I'm just gonna, I could talk about this for ages. <laughs> I was clogging up the supercomputer for most of Christmas. Uh, yeah. And my whole family thought I was very insane. I was, um, yeah, so I was, yeah, I think it's the academic rage, you know, the academic rage powers you to do quite a lot of stuff. And, um, it definitely took me through a couple of months of trying to get my head around coding, how to run all of these analyses. Um, yeah. And then at the end, after, you know, it probably took me half a year of solid time. Um, I had three beautiful curves of the range of possible effects that could have been found if you analyzed the same data set with the same research question, but in many different theoretically defensible ways. Uh, and the story it told was very different to what a single paper story is. You know, the story that this these graphs can show you and the curves can show you is that, you know, the way you analyze your data really matters. And if you average across all of them, actually the effect of social media use on, on well-being or the association between the two, I mean to say, is incredibly, incredibly small. So that's the very short version of a very long journey. <laughs> At this point, I offer the opinion that doing what has just been described is completely loopy. Um and very much a labor of love, uh, not something that I'd ever do in a hurry myself. I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> like you kind of get into it and then you're too too far in to stop. And I was running and then I had um, Uri Simonson, who is a creator of the specification curve analysis as a reviewer, and he kept on asking me to do other analysis, which was uh. amazing. Um, but it meant that I was running these simulations as well. So I didn't even just need to run, you know, the 20,000 or so analyses on hundreds of thousands of kids. I needed to run that up to 500 times. And each analysis took about 24 hours on the Oxford supercomputer. Wow. <laughs> so I was, you know, without that, you know, resource that it would have taken years to run. Um, I also wasn't a very proficient coder back then. So this was the first project I ever really done in R. <laughs> so, I noticed you have actually posted the code online and it's very readable and very followable. I think it gets, the, the newer project, it gets better. But yeah, I, was, <laughs> I, think, I think, you know, there's something amazing of when you first start coding that you literally think about every single step, and I try to com. I I try to do my best. So it's it's all about trying to your be do your best at the time. And I really did try to comment all the steps, but you know there is. I did like a weird mixture of all these different naming conventions and stuff that I only realized once I started working with people who've been coding for multiple years. Who said, you know, <laughs> this is so odd, um, but it's like a pigeon language. So was it worth it? It got an awful lot of attention, right? Yeah, I think I think compared to other academic articles, it naturally had a lot of media, but then compared to social media articles, it had a lot less. You know, I think if I would have written a, I, I've been telling people, you know, I could, give me two days and I can write you an article which makes a front page. You know, you just go in, you hack your data to find something really negative and then you publish it and that will create waves over waves. So... 
so you do have attention. Um, you know, I, I was very uh, interested in how people latched onto certain ideas. Like in the last podcast, you naturally talked about this um, eating potatoes and how I to really, for me, it was, I really tried to figure out how to communicate how, like how small the effects were. Like they were tiny, tiny, and but you can't write in an article like the effects were tiny, tiny, tiny. Um, so <laughs> wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Well, so what me and Andrew Shabelsky did is that we compared it to other other variables in the data that we knew shouldn't, for example, should or shouldn't affect well-being of kids. So from eating potatoes to wearing glasses to going to prison to eating with your family, etc. And then naturally we found things like wearing glasses and eating potatoes are have a more negative association with teenage well-being than uh, digital technology use. And I, I found it, yeah, amazing how quickly people latch onto the potatoes because in a way it was try- me trying to be funny and I'm, I'm very, very, I'm extremely bad with irony. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I was, I was trying to be like kind of ironic and funny. And now I've made all these headlines, which are kind of like eating potatoes was really bad. <laughs> and you're just <laughs> going like, no, I was, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> now tell me, have you got, uh, what has the response been from the authors who are pushing the line that um, digital technology is bad? Um, yeah, well, it was a lot of silence i think um naturally jonathan Haidt, who's been who wrote kind of the coddling of the american mind who based a big chapter on gene twenge's work which was the work that i reanalyzed the data from um started they started a google doc where they started collating all these different pieces of research that showed something different so it's kind of a massively um crowdsourced lit review um so that was one response, but it was never a direct way. Um, there is like currently in Nature Human Behavior, there was a reply from the authors, which is currently under review, but most of the things addressed in their commentary, I address in my supplementary materials. So yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> if I'm allowed to say <laughs> that it's under, re- but it's under review. Um, so, so yeah, I think there's been less pushback than I thought. But then I also tried really hard not to not to criticize anybody personally, because you never know what sort of, you know, finding results that are on the negative end of a spectrum of possible results you could have found can happen in many different ways. And um, so, yeah, but there's been less than I expected, really. And it's like what I felt when I started working on this, this is the first big kind of open science project I did. And, and it really came after half a year of soul searching in my PhD. Um, so it came as a huge relief. And it's amazing. You know, you're applying a method and you don't need to find a result. You know, I knew in the end that it would be published. I don't need... and. Also, in the last two pieces of work I've done, you know, I just I just need to try to do the best I can, and that's will hopefully be of you know the quality to to get it published. And for me, that was an eye opener because it was great. <laughs> and then, but then it should like this is what science should be. It's all of us doing our best um, to answer a question without worrying about the result. But it's still so far and few in between these experiences that. You know, I sometimes talk to PhD students and I'm like, oh, and then, 
you know, I didn't need to worry about results anymore. And everybody looks at you like you're talking about, you know, some paradigm that doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so it's like, I, I love, I love the method and I love working with these newer methods and just trying to improve things. And I'm incredibly lucky to be a PhD student at a time when that is publishable and that is recognized. You know, I think I'm, I'm so lucky to have not been a PhD three years ago. You know, all the papers that I've published won't, would have been a pain to get out because they all find complex null results or something in between. And, uh, and you had a newish paper that's come out in PNAS. Uh, what uh, what did you find there? Yeah, so there, um, Tobias, Dylan, and Andrew Shabilsky and I, we uh, looked at the longitudinal effects of social media use on life satisfaction in teens. So it was an amazing data set over, it was eight waves and most teens did at least five or at most five, but most did five, <laughs> five years where they mentioned their life satisfaction and their social media use in the survey. And I combined this specification curve analysis approach with a random intercept cross-like panel model. So that allows me to parse the kind of between person correlations that people normally report on and the within person effects. So kind of, you can ask questions like, does an adolescent who uses more social media than their own average in one year does their life satisfaction change in the next year and also vice versa? And again, we found mainly null effects. All of them were very small, but we did find very slight negative relations between kind of social media use causing a very small decrease in life satisfaction one year later, but also lower life satisfaction in one year causing a very small increase in social media use one year later. Um, and that more models were significant when we analyzed girls than boys. But again, the difference is not statistically significant yet. And there's so little theory in the area that it's, you know, it's a step too far to start making causal statements. But it's been really important because naturally we also work a lot with policy. And that was a big thing that, for example, the chief medical officer in England was very felt it was very important to actually start having longitudinal work. Uh, so it was really great to work on that. And the code is a beast. So if you, <laughs> if you ever want to look at uh, the best sort of code I can do, <laughs> that was that was that one. Yeah. I think what, what a lot of people forget is that people focus on the negatives of social media, but uh, don't realize that there's actually some protective effects. Um, I read a really fascinating article and just even speaking to a few few, a few younger kids, seeing how, how Fortnite has actually become uh, quite a community for, for, for younger boys. And they don't just go and play Fortnite as in they, they play the game. They literally just go there just to hang out and chat. And that is how they're, they're, they're building relationships and, uh, and doing things that way. And I thought that was, that was really fascinating. It, it wasn't something that I did when I, when I was growing up because we didn't have that sort of chat function. Um, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's a great way for people to connect and people forget that these things, in, in a sense, can actually be protective. We always look at the negative things, but we, we, we often forget to look at the protective factors. I think we often forget the positives. You know, I was sitting at dinner with somebody the other day and they were like, oh, social media is horrible. And, you know, not knowing that that's my research area. And then you're there going like, well, do you use social media? And they're like, yes, yes. And I, you know, I self-control it in that way. And it's really good for events. And you're there going like, well, then why is it so bad? And they're like, oh, it's for others. They can't self-control. So it's often looking at others. 
Um, and you see that in qualitative research with kids as well, that if they talk about the negatives of technology or social media, they often look at other, say, you know, tell stories about other people, not themselves. And I think we, yeah, we forget the function, the functional aspects. Like I once read that you only really notice that something's there is like when it's broken. <laughs> so I think we don't notice all the time social media helps us on a day-to-day basis. Um, and yeah, the same. I think when you start talking to adolescents and, and teens, there are conversations like, oh, I've been going through a really hard time and I Skype my friend on the iPad and then I slept with her on my bed. So like you put the, the teenager put their iPad on the pillow next to them and kind of in a very hard time for them and, and Skype in that way and to calm them, themselves down and let them sleep or like other stories about organizing events or empowering each other to talk through issues. And so I think in the end, social media will not be all positive or all negative. It will be something in between. And I think the current public discussion is just crowding out the important questions. You know, if we could just stop talking about whether it's negative or positive in general, I think we would have such a more constructive conversation about about things, really. What really infuriates me is when schools put blanket bans on social media and devices. So rather than actually teaching kids how to use it, both um, just just understanding how it works, these schools are just completely banning it. And I, I think that's that's completely backwards. Yeah, I guess it's it's really a school's choice. But what makes me annoyed is when it's all sham based on evidence. You know, and I feel like. So often, and I have only really interacted with policymakers in the UK, but there's, it's, they all say it's evidence-based policy or evidence-based rules as well in schools, but then it's, it's more like policy-based evidence or rule-based evidence. (laughs) You know, they go in, they do a Google search. And if you want to be freaked out, do a Google search with like social media addiction or social media negatives, and you will get horror stories but a Google search won't give you the whole story in this area because it's a thousand voices with PR teams and financial backing who do that on their day-to-day basis is to scream out the negatives <laughs> about social media against, you know, a couple of academic voices who uh, we're not paid to publicize the work or... You're, you're um, not in Facebook's big... You're not part of big Facebook? <laughs> Oh man, the, the requests I get about my funding is incredible. They what, what has been publicised a lot are these uh, addiction centres in in China and and South Korea. Um, do such things exist in the UK? I think we have some specialist clinics, but there I don't I can't think of many more than one or two. Um, the same in the states, you know, there are people who made that as their job. Um, but it's, there is just such a lacking evidence base that it's really difficult to see what they're actually doing. Um, plus I think it's important to remember that naturally people who use a lot, you know, there, there are people out there who use a lot of social media who will have some sort of mental health issues. It doesn't mean that it's caused by their social media use. There might be an underlying factor. And I think this is why I feel like scientists should start speaking out when there's no evidence and the conversation starts going in the wrong direction is that what I'm worried about is politicians or parents thinking that if a child isn't doing well, if you have a teenager that's doing poorly, 
oh, if we just take away their social media, they'll feel better. And it's just so <laughs> evidence-less. But it's such an easy argument. You know, we're in a time of increasing political divides. We're in a time of funding cuts where teenagers are struggling to get into mental health services, at least in the UK, where there's so many other problems. And people just love blaming the one thing that is not them or isn't the politics in their country and that's social media. So I think it's giving um, a lot of people a very easy way out of some very difficult questions. And you mentioned that scientists should speak out. What is the best way you think for scientists to speak out against stuff like this? <sighs> yeah, I, it's something that I've been really thinking about for a long time. Um, so I think one of it... I think that because in the end, it needs to start internally. You know, we need to have a better way of speaking out and criticizing research in the research field, because naturally a lot of these debates also happen in the area uh, as in the academic bubble. And I don't think we have the culture where we can actively have debates without feeling like you're criticizing another person. Um, so I think... You know, it's very hard from as an academic to tell people how to to speak out because we're just we're just so bad at it in the whole entire system. Um, and the way we do it is really bad as well. Like I've becoming increasingly disillusioned about how we press release every single article. You know, and I my my university does it as well. But in the way, each scientific article is just a brick. You know, it's just a brick, and we're building a house. But instead of press releasing the house once it's fully built and we can actually answer the question that people care about, we're press releasing every brick along the way. And it's like, it just doesn't make sense. And people just, every every week they get another headline about social media use and well-being or, you know, something along the lines of digital technologies and well-being. And actually in the end, it's just, they can't see the woods from, from the trees really. And so I, I don't know how to do it better um, because so many things are going wrong with how we communicate with the public, uh, and we're funded by public money. Like, I think that's something we should care about a lot more. But for me personally, I think it's just being willing to say when, when things aren't true and being happy to spend time with journalists, you know, journalists live on a different time zone than we do. You know, it's like elephants and flies for us getting back to an email in a day is quick, but for them, that's, that's like incredibly slow. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's just a mess, uh, but we can try to do our bit, but I'm becoming increasingly unhappy with what I can do. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be back soon with more Everything Hurts. One question we often get from listeners is how they can support the show, and we have two ways. The first is financially via Patreon, and uh, we have two support tiers. The first one is a dollar a month, and with that, you get the Everything Hurts newsletter, access to behind-the-scenes photos and videos, and that warm feeling that you are supporting the show. Uh, if you join our $5 Professor Fancy Pants tier, you get access to all those things. And in addition to that, uh, an exclusive mini episode, which is released every single month. Our last episode was on ResearchGate, and that was quite popular. So if you sign up, you get access to all the bonus episodes moving forward, but also the back catalog of bonus episodes. The second way you can, you can support the show is via social media. We would love it if you could post about the show on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Snapchat, whatever platform you are using. Now, let's get back to the show.
Welcome back to Everything Hurts. We are here with Amy Auburn uh, chatting about uh, all things digital technology. Um, before we get back into the show, we just want to give a quick shout out to um, to everyone who's been leaving nice reviews. I don't know if you can see this, James and Amy, but we have three reviews that have come last week, all with exactly the same title. Can you read that, James? Came from a car rental? <laughs> yeah, three titles that all say the same thing, unprofessional and uninformed. So, uh, thank you to our, our listeners that have heeded our call out from last week and um, given us all, all, all five stars uh, with, with the reviews there. So, keep, keep the reviews coming. Uh, we figured out a way to actually um, read all the iTunes reviews from all different countries because typically you can't do that. But we really appreciate that because that's one of the best ways for other people to find the show. But, uh, but enough on that. Um, Amy, I want to ask you, uh, what, is, what is the story behind uh, reproducibility? Yeah, um, so reproducibility, the story behind it was that, so even though there are like quite a lot of people on Twitter from Oxford Psychology who are into open science and Dorothy Bishop is kind of our ultimate kind of idol, <laughs> really. Why <laughs> Dorothy, um, I'm sure she's listening. Yeah, <laughs> hello. <laughs> um, so, but in the end, we don't have a lot in our department for open science. Uh, and it was something that both me and Sam Parsons complained quite vociferously about in a meeting with the head of department that all PhD students had on. And it, it was mainly like, what do you think we could do to make the department better? And we are kind of complaining about the stats teaching because we still teach SBSS. We are complaining about open science, um, complaining about more or less anything in between. And she just turned to us and said, well, then you should do something about it. That's kind of her current, her, she does that all the time. But uh, we kind of took it on board because at that time, Sophia Kluber, who's doing a master's in Amsterdam, is starting with... Um, Tom Hardwick and Ioannidis in Berlin, starting her PhD there in the summer. She was visiting Oxford. And so there's kind of three people that who wanted to make a difference. And I knew Sophia from my undergrad. Uh, so I roped her in. And what we started was a journal club because it just seemed the easiest thing to do. And you kind of just put together eight papers and make people come and talk about it. And so we just provided food during at lunch breaks and once a week and discussed these papers, which range from, you know, Marcus Manafo's a manifesto for reproducible science to false positive psychology to all these amazing classics, which everybody would love to read again and again. Um, and we actually had a really good turnout and it really changed. I felt the department for me because you start building something like a community just by sitting around a table at lunchtime. And I think that's something that I had from Twitter is that you start things, you start questioning, you know, where you used to be alone thinking that's really odd or like, why should scientists do that? This is crazy. Uh, and if you're the only one asking these questions in your lab group, you're probably going to shut up and think it's just you. And then Twitter allowed me to start meeting other people who felt the same. And then reproducibility allowed me to actually build that community or be part of that community in the department. So, so that's how it started. And then naturally, um, Sam was key in driving this to also become a podcast where, uh, Sam and Sophia and I tried to just give ECRs a voice. Um, 
kind of especially PhD, pre-PhD, just post-PhD, uh, which is part of it. And now it's been spreading. So we're almost at 10 journal clubs around hey. the UK. So we have a great OSF page where you can download all the materials and the snazzy logo and you get send stickers if you start your own journal club. And how, yeah, it's- how do you how do you get the teapot? Uh, <laughs> we don't even have a teapot you have, yet. You ha- so you have an official. I've seen. Don't you tell me you don't have that. I've seen an official teapot there is somewhere. An ofi- there are teapots now. Um. So more or less, the na- in the UK, we now have the UK reproducibility reproducibility network, and UKRN, as we call it, it kind of has loads of little pots of money from different funders to promote reproducible research around the UK. And that's headed by Marcus Benafo, but also um, kind of around the other universities. And they decided to support reproducibility as one of the initiatives. So they actually printed the teapots uh, and other people have been given them, but we actually, none have arrived in Oxford yet. So (laughs) yeah, we were still waiting. So official, official teapots exist. Someone else printed them and you don't have one. Yeah, sometimes My things God. go. Who, whoever's a bit responsible weird. for the teapots out there, get Amy a goddamn teapot. She's part. <laughs> I got <Terrible> stickers, <laughs> but yeah, no teapot. Stickers are good. But stickers yeah, are good. So we don't have stickers yet. If at the moment you only get a teapot if you're in the UK uh, and you start at reproducibility, and if you're not in the UK, you only get stickers, which are pretty cool. But um, yeah, so we're trying to kind of figure out how to get people teapots outside of the United Kingdom. Uh, but yeah, so it's it's really been great to yeah build build community because I think that's what empowers people to change. You know, there's so much so much in my beginning of my academic career went kind of wrong or things that I just didn't really make a decision. I just floated into different lab environments or lab groups. And uh, for me, it was key once I had a community around me to start actually thinking about what is a science I want to do? You know, what is the science that I want to be part of and ask those open science questions. And I think for young people in who are just starting their academic careers, it can be really crucial to just have people to talk to. So, yeah, it's kind of like a religion. <laughs> I always feel like we have like our weekly services. And then if a new, a new person turns up, you're all like really happy that they've joined. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's it's really great. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic initiative because um, like you said, uh, one thing about being in sort of undergrad or even postgrad is you sort of go from course to course and um, lecturers are teaching different things, but they actually have that one group which actually stays the same, and everyone can can talk about these 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 sort of open science issues. And, and like you said, some departments are really against this, or they're not necessarily against this, but they just kind of have no idea what's going on. They're still teaching. Oh, it's all more massive apathy, man. Yeah. I don't know if there's a lot of active opposition. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just sort of. We, we don't do that here, whatever the hell it is. Uh, and it just doesn't happen on that basis. More people don't give a shit than are kind of against anything. It's like voting, Dan. Problems Except if you're in Australia. Invariably the people who don't. Yeah. They force you. Wrong, Ken, the voting dingo. Yeah, they fro- they frog march you out to the, uh, to the voting booth and go, draw a dick or vote, or vote for someone and uh, away you go. Yep. That, that's how it works yep. in Australia. Or, 
or do that do that or you don't get a teapot yeah that, 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 that'll get them voting but okay so you've had you've had this community there and um, has there been any sort of bottom up shift in how things are run either in your department or have you heard other stories of how things have have, have these groups changed things from the bottom up I think what has changed is kind of people feeling they can personally live with decisions like, oh, I'm going to try to get my supervisor to agree to a registered report. You know, it's a little wins. Bottom Mm. up is never going to be a massive shift all at once, especially if you're fighting against, as James said, like major apathy and throughout the department. Everybody's stressed with their teaching. So one other person saying we should pre-register our master's theses isn't going isn't going to go through um but i think there are the the really the small wins and that's seeing people pre-register in labs i had never pre-registered you know with supervisors who told me a year ago that nobody cares about stats you know then <sighs> them doing daniel lacken's coursera course or people in other universities saying you know this gives me something to do open science related so i think i think the bottom-up approach is something so fundamental to the open science movement, but naturally we're not going to shift mountains with it. In in the end, it'll need both, or we need to wait till the bottom-up reaches the top. Uh, but yeah, I celebrate the small the small wins um, at the moment. But anything major? No, I yeah, I think it's just you're met with with major just. They're just, it's just static. Everything's just not changing. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, that's part of academic life. Uh, we'll have a meeting about it. We'll put it on the agenda. When's that? Oh, late September. <laughs> and um, we can't implement anything till the semester's over. And then after that, I've got my sabbatical. And when my sabbatical is done, I'm going to Nepal to live as a ghost. And, you know. 18 months later, it's turned into an agenda item somewhere. It's, you know, there's this sort of emptiness to things. It makes you appreciate startup culture a whole lot more when everyone's like, oh, good, well, let's do all this shit by next Wednesday. Can we do it? Yes, we can. That's kind of exciting. So, yeah, I, I noticed you didn't use the traditional Planck's dictum when you said wait for the people at the bottom to become the people at the top. Which, of course, means the people at the top are dying. They're dead. <laughs> um, presumably, you're not going to pre-register them out of existence. As, well, maybe some of us. So, how many episodes in are you guys now with the podcast? How's What's the, the, the health of the podcast? Um, you're putting me on the spot. I think we're at like 15 or 18. I don't know how many, I don't know how many we're <laughs> at, so don't... don't don't get. Don't think there's a wrong answer yeah, to that. Yeah, so bit, we're currently uh, doing a stream of interviews with kind of yeah PhD students who are doing cool stuff. So had one on registered reports with Hannah Hobson, who is like one of the first adopters of registered reports ever during her PhD. Um, talked to Katie Drax, who's a PhD, doing kind of a multiverse of multiverses. Um, we've talked. Whoa, whoa, hold up, hold up. What the- yeah, don't ask me to explain it, but <laughs> that's surely that's got to be called the omniverse. Yeah. Oh, I'll we'll need to send that suggestion on. 
uh, really. That's such a cool name, though. Please, please use that awesome name and be all... Uh, now I want to do one just what, to call sorry, it the Omniverse. What, what, <laughs> what, is, what, is, what is Omniverse analysis, seeing as you've just said it was a thing? Well, I think it's, it's kind of like merging the many analysts one data set paper where they got loads of different statisticians or statistician groups to analyze the same data set with the same research question with specification curve mm. or multiverse ah, analysis. Love it. So you kind of get all the different decisions off the statistical teams, but then you run mm. like all possible ways that so you get those ideas off the teams and then you run all possible analyses from that. So it's a team in, at wow. the University of Bristol. And if you want to analyze the data, I think the submissions for kind of teams is still open. We'll link to that. I'm crossing my fingers. Oh. <laughs> if it is open. Oh, yeah, I hope so. I hope when when this comes out, I mean, maybe there's a few people who'd go for that. But geez, when, when I hear about something like that, the first thing on my mind, I hope this is a nice thought, is I hope whatever the hell they're answering is important because... I mean, it's all very well to do an exercise in sort of analytical flexibility, but geez, I hope they're answering something that's worth everyone's time because that's a lot of time. Mm. It is. I think it's, it's digital media use and well-being computers. as well. So it's the same research questions that I answer, okay. uh, really. So, ah, so yeah, I think good. it's. it was very much dependent on their data set as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's time and, and it's... It's teams that love overcomplicating things. Uh, you know, I, I love doing it as well, so I can very much uh, feel with them. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so yeah, the podcast is doing well. Uh, I think it's really great to give some voice to people kind of on the ground, trying to innovate in the very early stages of their careers. Um, and it's really nice to, to meet everyone. So, so yeah, it's good. I think it's just nice for people to know that they're not alone in their experiences. Makes makes a mm. huge difference. It's one it's one thing actually seeing it on Twitter, but another thing actually hearing voices and uh, and hearing conversations. So, I think the the, the work that uh, that you folks are doing is uh, is really important. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's it's just making the community a bit stronger and making sure that people who are maybe in departments where they're they feel like they're the only one or in lab groups where they keep on needing to struggle against research practices they think is, are wrong, uh, that they feel supported in some way. Um, because naturally not everybody can adapt all practices that they want at once, but it's really a small steps in the right direction. And um, it's keeping, also it's keeping those people in academia, like you see too many good people just leave. Uh, so it's trying to, yeah, concerted effort to actually keep people in and, and support each other because I think that's another key thing like I would never be here without the support of the open science community people sharing their code with me people sharing their time with me uh, so so yeah I think the community is one of the best things that we have so it's nice to kind of do your bit and try to to support them mm. Mm. that is uh uh civilized <laughs> yes you're, you're very nice we should have you back all the time yeah this is such a wonderful kind of counterweight to just grousing about <laughs> things all the time so positive jesus oh 
Now, uh, b- before we uh, finish up the episode, we do like asking our guests some uh, quickfire questions. So, we want to ask you, Amy, uh, what is uh, <laughs> what is one thing that you've changed your mind about over the last few years when it comes to your research? Yeah, well, I wanted to say the kind of whole media releasing stuff. Um, you know, I thought I was doing everything right with interacting with the media, but I think something I recently changed my mind on is that press releasing every paper might not be the solution. Um, Mm. but I think longer term, yeah, like I think I've really changed my mind on the whole, yeah, being in the public eye. So there is, I think we... Maybe it's just in the UK, but I think more generally there is a sort of inherent goal to be in the public eye. And I know we're underpaid and that's kind of the recognition for our work is so key. But I think we really should put the public first in a lot of what we're thinking and we don't um, because they don't need to see a scientist on TV every day and they don't need to see you on TV every day or on Uh, or they don't need to know exactly about your study. I think if we could actually think about how we communicate with the public more instead of just thinking about how we communicate with each other in our bubble, I think hopefully things might be better. But I still haven't found solutions. I think I've just recognized that there are more problems with it than than I can, uh, than I thought only just a couple of months ago. So, are you almost Mm. suggesting in a sense that rather than publishing the the results using a press release for every paper we kind of wait for a few papers almost like a thesis and present a body of work is that more what you're getting at what what you would like to see yeah well i think it's something that's really impossible at the moment isn't it because we're all so individualized (laughs) you know each research group is doing their own thing and we publish it individually and so being a collective is more difficult but the public see us as a collective you know we're the scientists and so I think there is opportunity there. Um, there's an amazing organization in, called the Science Media Center in London that helps communicate mm. science to the public. Um, and maybe organizations like that could help bundle research and say, when is a good time for this to be released in one go? Um, but I do think things are going wrong. And if we want to be trusted, we should probably start working together more as scientists and thinking about how we communicate with the public. It's somebody at the very beginning of my academic career, I was interviewed by the Daily Mail and I, I didn't I didn't want to say anything that was wrong. Uh, and I kind of called them afterwards being like, I didn't tell them anything. And they were like, you shouldn't have done that. You should have just said whatever, you know, people just forget what you said, but they, they remember your face. And I was there <laughs> going like, wait, but I'm funded by public money. I should just tell them complete crap (laughs) you know just for it to be so yeah so i think that there are a lot of things going wrong in that area you know we the open science movement we've also really been thinking about a lot about communicating with each other you know making our reporting better and making us more transparent but communicating outside the academic bubble is still the wild west you know anybody can say really whatever they want um, mm. And there's no really thought behind it. You know, you just press release it and you see what outlet takes it up. You know, you just write your conversation article and hope that it gets as many clicks as possible. And should we be measuring our impact on the public by how many clicks we no. get? Or oh, I so disagree. Know? Yeah, yeah. It's such, it's such a problem. 
um, it's like clickbait has hit science in, in this sense and we're writing our releases in order to get the more clicks uh, when, when we should be you know rewarded on more quality but that is incredibly difficult to do and something we're not going to solve in, in, in a podcast so for our second question we want to ask uh, what uh, what book or paper would you recommend that everyone should be reading oh, that was super hard and I think I'm actually going to go with a book but it's not it's actually a fiction book <laughs> Hey. So, yeah. Nice. So, it's a long way to small angry planet. It's really good. Uh, I and it's really important sometimes to not do academic things, so I thought I'd champion that as well. Uh, yeah, it's a cool sci-fi, very diverse kind of challenges assumptions about group stereotypes. Uh, and I really enjoyed reading it when cuz yeah, my time off is is sacred to me and I I really enjoyed that book. Amy Orban, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me.